Clayco is a proud sponsor of Build St. Louis. At Clayco, it's been their culture from the very beginning to do more than just build, to create, to innovate, and to do so with a holistic, intelligent balance of art and science that's unmatched anywhere. Clayco understands that it's not about the walls they plan and the buildings they put up. It's about the people and their purpose within them every day. Clayco builds for a cure, for a scientific breakthrough, for a family that's safe and healthy, for a cleaner world, and for a better future. Clayco is a full-service turnkey real estate, architecture, engineering, design building construction firm. Clayco delivers clients across North America the highest quality solutions on time, on budget, and above and beyond expectations. Welcome everyone to Build St. Louis, the region's new podcast that captures and shares the very heartbeat of construction and development. I'm your host, Carrie Smith, owner of Information Works, and in this episode, we are delighted to welcome attorney Quinn Murphy, who heads the construction and receivable recovery industry teams at Sandberg Phoenix. Quinn represents contractors in non-payment claims in all 50 states, and he also helps contractors create their own internal collections policies that maximize net recovery. And Quinn, it is a pleasure to welcome you in this episode to Build St. Louis. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you, Carrie. Look excited about talking. Awesome. Well, let's dive right into our topic entitled Deflective Construction. And I'm really looking forward to this because I'm not familiar with it at all. And I write a lot about construction and interview people about construction projects. And I know we like to think that they go off without a hitch, but they're really complex animals unto themselves. And I'm sure that this issue comes up quite a bit. I'm looking forward to hearing the types of clients you represent. And first, just to start with a definition of, if you could share with us, what is defective construction? Sure. So construction defect litigation surrounds an allegation that construction on a project was defective or improperly performed. Really, there are two types of what we call defect litigation. One is a design defect litigation, which by the name you might derive involves design professionals, architects, and engineers, and the claim that the designs that they put together for a particular project were defective or didn't work or otherwise unusable. And then the second kind, the one we're talking about today, is construction defect claims, where the claim is that the contractor either used bad material or the contractor's workmanship was bad, and therefore the project that the owner contracted to build, he didn't get. And so those are really the two type defect litigation. I'd say it's kind of divided evenly 50-50 in terms of the frequency of filing, but most of my practice surrounds construction defects, although I do do some of the design defects as well. Oh, that's good to know. I was just going to ask you, of the two, bad material or bad workmanship, any of those two, is one tend to crop up more than the other, or do you just see both of them? I would say workmanship is probably more frequent than material. As we'll talk about here down the line, sometimes bad material or bad products can be a bit of an open and shut case because in the law has a theory called strict liability where if you provide a product and it's bad, then the manufacturer of that product is liable. So because manufacturers are so frequently sued in that capacity, more often than not, if a contractor is brought in, it's over bad workmanship or the allegation of that. 
Very good. So when we're talking about representing people in a claim or a lawsuit or mediation or however that evolves, who, Quinn, would you say are the common parties to the legal action, to the litigation? Is it owners, contractors? Who would be involved potentially in either of those bad materials or bad workmanship? Yeah, absolutely. So normally owners will file a lawsuit and they will name almost everybody who had involvement in the project. They'll sue the contractor that they have an agreement with. Then the contractor might bring in subcontractors that feels are actually responsible for the work that's being contested or suppliers that supplied material that they think is part of the liability chain. Certainly design professionals can be brought in. It's not uncommon for construction defect case to be filed against a contractor and then the contractor to take the position, hey, listen, I know you don't like the project we delivered, but it's actually just like your design professional designed it. So this isn't contract or a construction defect case. This is actually a design defect case. And so they'll bring in the architect or the engineer and they'll claim that this is really their fault and not mine. And so really almost everybody start to finish that had any involvement with the subject matter that's the base for the litigation ends up, for better or worse, being a party and sitting at the table and fighting the fight to see who's responsible. Wow, it sounds like that could grow infinitely more complex the more parties you bring in. It does. It's certainly one of the more complex types of construction litigation. And when you factor in that a lot of this is judgment calls, you know, a lot of the basis for whether a certain item should have been constructed one way or the other is kind of an industry-specific analysis based on expertise and means and methods. And everybody gets their own expert witnesses to come in and say, hey, my guy did it the right way and their guy didn't. And you have conflicting testimony. So you are right. It becomes a very complex piece of litigation. It's pretty labor intensive, which means for contractors, it's cost intensive. So a lot of the contractors try to avoid it at all costs. Wow. By the time you meet with the parties, Quinn, is it pretty much destined for court or is there still some type of like potential, you know, mediation related conversation? Well, when I meet with contractor clients, I usually don't get together with them unless either a case has been filed already and they're a named defendant, or they've received a demand letter from the owner and the owner is saying the construction here was defective and we want you to pay for it, and therefore litigation is really imminent. Sometimes clients will get you involved early on when they can see the writing on the wall and they can see this claim is coming down the pipe. As a litigator, that's a great advantage and benefit because you can kind of operate against the factor drop, you can not escalate it by being directly involved, but you can counsel your contractor on how to document certain issues and how to respond to certain issues. Because if you think about it, when a client or a contractor gets you involved prior to litigation, the dispute is still being communicated about between yourself and the owner, and you have an opportunity, really rare and valuable opportunity, to create documentary evidence, to write letters that explain your position, to ask for information that you think helps support the fact that your construction was not defective. And so as a litigator, we love when clients get us involved early because we can really affect the evidence. That being said, it's always a cost-benefit analysis and having an attorney starts to accrue those costs. And so it's probably somewhat rare that we get involved at really early stages unless it's a big, large issue. That makes a lot of sense. Getting you involved earlier can do nothing but be helpful, I'm sure. 
So what type of claims, maybe, you know, feel free to use some examples of the type of claims under that heading of bad workmanship or bad material that what would be like the owner, whoever the, would it be the plaintiff is alleging? What are some categories of that, I guess? Absolutely. There's several. So the most straightforward kind of clean cause of action that can be filed is a breach of contract claim. And that is always going to involve the owner suing the contractor for breaching the contract. And that breach could either be a claim that he just didn't comply with what he was supposed to comply with and built a defective project, or it can be a claim that some aspect of the contractor's work breached one of the warranties that the contractor provided. And so it could be that the contractor said, I'm warranting this component of the work for a year, and the owner is now within that year period, and the owner says, hey, wait a second, you told me that this would do X, Y, and Z, I'm still within the warranty period. And so I'm going to make a claim under the warranty. The claim under the warranty isn't litigation, but if the contractor fights back and says, well, this isn't inside the scope of that particular provision or warranty, then it becomes effectively another source of a breach of contract claim. So breach of contract is really the most straightforward. Just to carry that on down the chain, and we talked about this a moment ago, the contractor then can bring folks in that he thinks are responsible under the allegation that they too breached their contract by not doing the work properly. And he doesn't have to admit it either. He doesn't have to say, yes, the work was done wrong, but you're responsible. He can say, if the work is found to have been done wrong, then my subcontractor or my supplier is really who's to blame. So those are third-party claims, but they are breach of contract claims, which is why I mention them now. A second kind of umbrella category of claim is just a negligence claim. And that is based upon the allegation that a certain aspect of the work was performed in a negligent manner and failed to comply with kind of generally accepted standards of care, which resulted in injury. More often than not, that can be a claim that where somebody got hurt on a project and it's due to a condition that was created or maintained by the contractor not taking steps of precaution. So that's really a negligence claim. Sometimes strict liability is a claim that can be an issue in these cases, and strict liability usually involves defective products that were sold to a contractor and then installed by the contractor. And so if a defective product is put in a project, then the contractor and also the manufacturer or supplier sometimes of that product will be also brought into the litigation under what we call a strict liability claim. We have already talked about bringing in other parties that you think are responsible under kind of a contribution or what we call an indemnity claim. But then another aspect of these cases that's almost always present is a non-payment aspect. So usually in these construction defect claims, at some point, the owner will have stopped paying for the work because he wants the contractor to have done something and fix something that the contractor isn't willing to do without additional compensation. So almost always in these cases, you have a non-payment claim, which is just a breach of contract claim. But because it's non-payment, you also have an aspect of mechanics lien rights. So the contractor will have filed a mechanics lien on the project and said, hey, owner, we can fight about whether or not I did this work correctly, but guess what? You owe me a bunch of money and I'm going to lien your project. 
And so the mechanics lien laws are triggered, and usually the mechanics liens are part of those cases as well. And then the final component or type of claim that's sometimes involved in these cases is a delay claim. And a delay claim is usually asserted in a commercial context by owners where they've said, hey, I was building this commercial building, and you told me you'd have it done by April. And because the construction was defective and because you didn't get it done by April, I haven't been able to lease it. And so I've sort of suffered these economic damages. And as a result, you owe me for delay as well as the defective construction. So they're really complex cases from a, a litigator perspective. They're fun cases because they're multifaceted. They're tough cases to get in and out of quickly and efficiently, which is why contractors justifiably avoid them at all costs. But all these five, six, seven causes of action are usually all thrown into a litigation with a handful of parties and then their insurance companies and everybody sits down and they litigate these cases. And so they're really very substantive form of construction litigation. I'm glad you mentioned that about the insurance because I wrote a note as you were articulating those about, you know, the different subcontractors, for example, would each of them hopefully have their own I don't know if they're bonded, insured, if it's liability insurance or errors or mission, what kind of insurance, because it sounds like kind of a food chain ripple effect of all this. So I would hope that those individual parties are, they're just not relying on the general contractor to be well, the one right. holding the insurance. Yeah, you're right. And that's one yeah. thing, you know, starting back from the very first type of claim we talked about, the breach of contract, normally the owners will require the contractor to have certain levels of insurance and anyone he contracts with to have certain levels of insurance. So as all this kind of variety of claims are asserted in the case, as if it isn't complicated enough to begin with, all these parties are tendering these claims and demands and lawsuits to their insurance carriers, who then are appointing usually attorneys to step in and represent them at trial. So if this case ever gets to sort of a negotiation or a mediation, which is something we can talk about here in a moment, the table is very full because you've got the owner, the contractor, a handful of subs, a handful of suppliers, and all of them each have their own insurance representative there as well. So it's helpful that there's insurance involved in these cases, certainly for the contractors, but it also adds one extra level of complexity because the insurance attorneys get involved and start to defend and and away they go. So you are right. Everyone at every one of these levels usually has their own insurance policy and also counsel. Makes sense. And we can get into the, I'd love to learn more about the, you know, the mediation and that potential aspect. Do these typically, are they bench trials or who, it's not like a jury trial, right? For this type of thing? Is it? No, actually the default is a jury trial. So it's a full out jury trial. I would say more of these take place in state court than in federal court, although the larger cases do end up in federal court, but they are jury trials unless the parties have agreed otherwise. And the parties can agree otherwise if they agree to waive the jury trial and just handle these by bench trial. And, you know, that's just a negotiation point. Some do, some don't. Or if they've decided that instead of litigation, any disputes about this project will be handled through dispute resolution. That's actually very common. So I would suggest that probably more of these are in arbitration than in litigation, or at least a similar percentage, because some of the more prevalent contracts have arbitration provisions, and you see them all the time in these disputes. Kind of just a pandemic-related question. I don't know if it's you know non-sequitur or not, but did things get crazier as a result of all the weird stuff happening that impacted construction in 2020? Are you still seeing that play out, or did it not impact this kind of litigation? 
it was interesting. The industry as a whole somehow thrived during the pandemic. So we were really busy during the pandemic because there were a lot of disputes going on. And I attributed that to folks and contractors were concerned about payment and therefore they were less willing to compromise and be patient on payment delays, which meant they were coming to me quicker in the process and saying, hey, I'm owed this money, file a lien. So we had a all, an awful lot of litigation in that respect. In terms of the type of litigation that I think really increased during the pandemic, it was supplier-related cancellations and delays and cost overruns. So a lot of projects were bid pre-pandemic based upon estimates, both labor and material that were provided pre-pandemic. And when supply chains were disrupted and the cost of materials escalated, they tried to then go back to the owners and renegotiate these contracts or work out some sort of compromise. And the owners were really hesitant to do it because they were facing you know, economic struggles of their own and they said no. And so the material ended up not being provided and then litigation came up. So. The supply delays, both in terms of materials and the labor shortage, really sparked a whole lot of this litigate, breach of contract litigation in the construction industry during the pandemic. Wow. Appreciate yeah. you walking through that one. So you've got some tips you can maybe offer our listeners who are in this industry and wondering, you know, how they can avoid some of these litigative results or what they can do on the front end of things before their next project begins. Please share with us your tips for how to do that. You bet. Happy to do that. So I've come up with six tips that I think help kind of bypass or head off construction litigation. They're not foolproof. You know, there's no lightning in a bottle or, or silver bullet, but these will help avoid some of the cases and the typical facts that we see underlying this expensive and complex form of litigation. The first is that everybody has an interest in creating a well-defined scope of work in the contract, okay? All the scope of work in the contract does is let make sure that everybody is on the same page as to who is responsible for what, precisely what material will be installed or used, and when the project is to be completed. That scope of work forms the basis of so many of these construction defect claims because there's disagreement because one contractor thought he was supposed to do this and another contractor thought he was supposed to do that and the owner disagrees with both of them and there's just disagreement because there's ambiguity in who was supposed to do what. So if you can start out with a really well-defined scope of work, you are really ahead of the game. Both contractors and owners have the same incentive to make that happen. The second issue that I think is a good way to head this off is to strictly enforce the change order process. Now, a change order is when a contractor is on a project and some aspect of the work changes by the owner. Maybe the owner wants more of a particular type of material or he wants you to do it a little bit differently. Usually contracts will say if the contractor's work is going to be changed, you have to execute a change order to have it signed by both parties. That's all fine and good. And at the time the parties sign the contract, everybody's on board with that. But as the project is unfolding and everybody's trying to meet deadlines and it's going in a million and one different directions, sometimes contractors and owners will allow field instructions, which is, hey, I'm on the project, I'm your superintendent, I want you to do it a different way, and that never finds its way into a change order. And the reason why that's a problem is because then at the end of the day, memories differ, parties' testimony differs, nobody really knows what was approved or unapproved, maybe a supervisor is let go, 
or changed on the project and witnesses aren't still around. And so it really benefits everybody if every change in the work is memorialized by a change order. It just creates a much better, cleaner project. Makes sense. The third suggestion is for both contractors and also really owners in that way to be extremely selective with subcontractors and suppliers. Take your time to do diligence. Sometimes when you're bidding a project, you want to use the cheapest component you can put into your bid so you can be the most competitive. One common theme we often see is construction defect litigation, where the contractor says the subject of this defect claim is a subcontractor or supplier I've never used before. I didn't know what I was getting into with this guy. And so oftentimes it may be less expensive to use them in the short term, but in the long run, it's far more expensive, particularly with legal costs. The fourth suggestion would simply be to document everything. If there's a change on the project, confirm it through a change order and send an email. If you show up at weekly project meetings, have your folks assigned to create notes and then circulate those notes of what was decided and what wasn't decided. The more that you can document the project, the better you are if the case goes south and you end up in litigation and testimony is person A versus person B, but person B can say, hey, listen, I sent out an email that confirmed everything that was talked about and you never said anything. So if here we are now, you're disputing what I have to say, but my email said the very same thing. Juries tend to put a lot of weight in documents and emails that are transmitted contemporaneously at the time of the project and not afterwards when everybody has an incentive to try and backfill. So documenting the issue in the project is really a critical step. I would think the timestamp on that too of the email and the date could really serve well in terms of that testimony. Absolutely. I mean, an easy way we counsel contractors to just have someone designated that this individual goes to every single project meeting, takes diligent notes, has them transcribed into an email, cleans them up and sends them to the whole project team, both their project team and the owner and any design folks, sends it to everyone. And man, from a litigation perspective, that is gold when the case ends up at trial because you've got a really well-documented chronology of exactly what was said and who said it. The fifth way, we talked about this a moment ago, is to utilize alternative dispute resolution in your contract. And by dispute resolution, we're primarily talking about mediation or arbitration. The contracts I see normally involve arbitration with the AAA, American Arbitration Association, but it's sort of debatable whether arbitration is more efficient than litigation or not, but the general assumption is that it is, and you can save a little bit of money and have a little additional flexibility if you arbitrate instead of litigate. Another advantage of arbitration over litigation is that if a case is filed against your company in litigation in a court, that becomes a public record. And if someone is looking to hire you for a job, they can look up what cases you have outstanding and they can see that you've been sued on this particular project. And you may be totally right. And this may be a baseless lawsuit, but it doesn't look good to have that case out there. The arbitration records are confidential. You don't pop up in that same context. Oh, that's really good to know. I didn't know. Yeah. And that's public project, private project, anything that's public record if it's 
litigation? Well, it's on private projects. If you arbitrate private projects, that is then confidential. I can't go to a database and see what contractors involved. You could have a contractor with a hundred arbitration, private arbitrations, and you could have a contractor with one litigation. That one litigation will pop up. The hundred arbitrations are nowhere to be found. So the one contractor's record looks a lot cleaner than the other. So I think that's a benefit of arbitration. And then just real briefly, I don't see any downside to adding to almost every contract a mandatory mediation requirement. And what that basically says is if we get in a dispute about this project, we have to sit down at a table with everybody who may be responsible and give an honest, good faith effort to negotiate a solution before we all go spend a bunch of money with legal actually fighting our dispute. And I am a big fan of mediation, and I always tell folks I have had so many cases settle that I thought would never settle at mediation. Because litigation and arbitration is expensive and everybody stands to gain if you just sit down at a table and see if you can work it out. So I always recommend the mediation provision as a prerequisite to arbitration. And both of those really help the contractor minimize costs and help facilitate early resolution. Makes sense. You have a final one on here that seems pretty basic, but you can't communicate enough, can you? Yeah. No, you're exactly right. The final point is just maintain a high level of client communication. I mean, you know, owners want to get the project done on time within budget, and so does the contract. And so, you know, when issues pop up, just communicate them. Just constantly be communicating with the owner, telling them what's going on, how you're going to fix it, how you're going to take care of them. Because then when larger issues pop up where there may be a disagreement down the line, there's sort of a chronology of cooperation between the two parties that brings about this goodwill. And at least to some extent, the parties want to continue working together because they sort of still like each other. And it's an easy thing to do. Be transparent, communicate great, but you'd be surprised at how often the owner's problem with the contractor's were was really the genesis of the dispute was that they didn't hear about it early enough. Then they felt like the contractor was hiding it and trying to backfill excuses and trying to fix it without allowing them to to have input into it. And that's just an easy problem to remedy. So why not just be over-communicated to owners and talk to them frequently, email them often, and have an open-door policy? And really, you'd be surprised at how many of these disputes can be bypassed. And it just makes so much sense, Quinn, in terms of relationship building, you know, that may be a client or an owner you want to work with again. And it's probably a small community. And if people aren't communicating well, they can really come back to bite you no matter which party you are in the project. That's exactly right. I mean, at the end of the day, there's no industry that is more relationship driven than construction. And to the extent you can develop the reputation as a contractor, as someone who does the work, is honest, forthright, gives fair days labor for a fair day's pay and communicates issues and allows the owner to help solve them from the beginning, that goes a long way towards finishing projects and getting new projects alike. This has been so helpful, and I just appreciate another layer of complexity to construction. I thought I had heard them all, and this is another very real-world scenario that I'm sure everyone in the chain, from owner to subcontractor doing the landscaping, needs to be aware of how this happens. Anything else you would want to add? You pretty much covered the gamut, I think, in this episode. You bet. No, Kara, I appreciate talking to you. This is from a lawyer's perspective. These are fun cases to talk about and litigate, but they're also fun cases to avoid if you can. So I appreciate talking to you, the opportunity to talk to you, and maybe we can do it again sometime. 
That would be great. And again, in this episode, we have been learning from attorney Quinn Murphy, who heads the construction and receivable recovery industry teams at the law firm of Sandberg Phoenix. And Quinn, it has been a pleasure learning from you as it always is. And please do come back and learn us some more another time. Will do, Carrie. Thank you so much. Thank you. From breach of warranty to negligence, the construction attorneys at Sandberg Phoenix are ready to assist you. Sandberg Phoenix's construction team identifies problems and finds solutions before, during, and after the construction process, freeing up your time and providing you peace of mind. Contact Sandberg Phoenix today at sandbergphoenix.com. That's sandbergphoenix.com. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertising.